Hello and welcome to Walking Three Worlds and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we're filming on today, particularly the Turrbal and the Yagara people of this land in this beautiful city which is Mianjin, uh, the Aboriginal name from the Turrbal people or Brisbane as we know. Mm. And um, my guest today is a long-term friend and musician. Um, he's also many things, and you'll hear all about this as well. Uh, Mr. Gitano Ban, Uncle Gitano, and we're <laughs> loving to have him on, on board and have a good yarn with him today. So I'll, I'll start by sort of asking <coughs> Gitano to tell our listeners who you are, where you've come from, who is your mob, mm. You know, and as a Torres Strait Islander man, give us some deep insights to what that means too. Well, I guess it all began in a mythical place called Mackay in North Queensland. And I say mythical now because the Mackay of my childhood is no longer there. And I guess I le left Mackay some, uh, geez, nearly 40 years ago. So you were born and raised in Mackay? Yep. Well, even my birth was, a, a, I keep thinking of my life as a, Keystone Cop event, you know, there's... <clears throat> so because of my size, my mother was taken to Rockhampton and, and so I was born in Rockhampton and then a couple of days later put on a train and shipped back home to Mackay. So the, the, though Rockhampton's, the, I guess, the entry point, I guess Mackay's always been um, considered my hometown. <clears throat> I grew up, uh, I guess, in a extended Torres Strait Islander family. My family comes from the central regions of the Torres Straits, and we are descended from a um, cannibal uh, war, warring chief by the name of Kebisu, who was, <clears throat> I guess, um, alive and active in the um, uh, 1800s. Mm. William Bly, when he was cast aside from the, uh, the, the, the bounty, actually sailed past our island strong home, and, um, which he uh, called Warrior Reef. So you can imagine William Bly with the 12 other people in this long boat with a flimsy sail, sailing through the Torres Straits on the way to Timor. And there are a hundred, um, well, in his word, savages giving chase with bows and arrows and skulls around him and led by my uh, great-great-grandfather, Kebisu. So it's documented that they went past. The only the two things they had in favour, well, three things they had in favour that morning was uh, it was early morning when they sailed past Tudu. The, the tide was with them, so the tide in that area flows very quickly. And uh, our traditional warriors have been uh, known. So in the central regions of the Torres Straits, our uh, ancestors were nomadic, so they'd live on different islands depending on the seasons. And the women and children would be in the canoe and the men would swim in the open sea, holding onto the canoe. So the tide would swim very, uh, it was very strong. So wind, tide, early morning. If not, I'm sure I'd be sitting here, uh, Fletcher Christian or um, William Bly or something, because um, how our people inherited names was um, we would take them and so I'm assuming the, the, the name Gitano would come from some poor forsaken sailor over the years <laughs> who was probably nice eating, so they, um, <laughs> they named it. Uh, 
The Torres Strait had a really good myth. I'd heard, I'm not sure if it was you that told me or your nephew about um, when the first missionaries arrived in Torres Strait. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe this is just a myth. Yes. Um, they got eaten. And you mentioned there the cannibal thing. Yes. Uh, but also the, the story they were talking about somehow aligned with the stories that, yeah. that were captured <clears throat> by the Torres Strait. Well, I, I guess after several attempts from the um, London Missionary Society and, you know, I mean, the Torres Straits um, received its name from a Spanish explorer named Luis Vaz de Torres, who was in that region 120, 30-odd years before Cook sailed in there. Yes. And the Spanish found it such a significant find because when Torres sailed in from uh, the, the Cape York Peninsula sailing west, they thought they were sailing into a big um, gulf or um, a bay or something. When they found themselves back in the open sea, hmm. they realised that Australia and New Guinea weren't connected. So they documented that. Spanish and French kept that a secret for 130-odd years until Cook sailed through there. So when the missionaries decided to come back again, they brought missionaries from uh, the uh, Solomon Islands, Leifu, and um, so they came with black missionaries. And my name, Gitano, actually is origin from, from Leifu Island. And... Um, so when they came, they um, brought the teachings of Christianity. But before that, there is a legend that was told to me by my uncle Jack Cannell, who spoke of this uh, sugu or squid, and whose name was Malo. And Malo was captured by a woman in a weres, which is like a, a, a bamboo uh, sardine catcher and mm. she, she caught the squid she was, went to kill it the squid said if you don't kill me he said i will bring you um great knowledge and i will make you younger so as the days progressed she became younger her husband got suspicious she showed him the squid they both became younger and people got suspicious and they approached the couple and said what's happening here is there puri puri happening which is a black magic and then she brought out the squid and the squid said, if you let me go, I will come back in the form of, uh, sorry, if you let me go, I'll bring great knowledge and prosperity to this village. And, um, and the people said, if we let you go, how will we know you? And Malo said, I will come back in the form of light. And he left a set of teachings for them. And now on um, Mer, or, uh, Mer Island, Murray Island, there are eight uh, clans, and my understanding is that eight clans are representative of that sugu, of the squid. So when they let the squid go, when the London Missionary Society came through the Torres Straits, first, firstly landing on Darnley Island on the 1st of July, 1871, I believe, they um, then sailed to, um, to Mur and and they said, we bring you the light of the world. So when they looked at Christianity's teachings and Malo's teachings, it was one and the same. Mm. So our people adopted Christianity, not because we saw that as a, an introduced religion, but we saw that as, as a promise made, a promise kept. Mm. Isn't that interesting? And that's, and that's how and why a lot of um, tradition today in Torres Strait, very 
uh, connected to Christianity. Christianity, yeah. yes, yeah, fascinating, mm. fascinating. So you know, I guess you know, people ask me why are you a Christian? Mm. I said, well, I'm a Christian because of yeah, you know, that connection with that your connection. own culture. Yeah, mm. you know, so mm. that's fascinating. And and how many um, Torres Strait Islanders? Like, do you know what's the population of? Um, oh, what are we now? Twenty. Five or twenty-six thousand, I think, in the census. Check your census, people. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the but um, not just living there, but I'm talking about even spread across the world well, now. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm talking about in general, and yes. I think that you know, the last census, you know, if um, um, Aboriginal um, uh, people are three percent of the population, yes, we're probably three percent of the of the Aboriginal population. Yes. So we're, yes. A, we're a small group. Because people say, how do islanders know each other? Because mm. uh, <laughs> there's not a lot of you. No, there's no. not a lot of us. And, no. And intermarriages and we, you know, it doesn't take us long before we go, hey, Greg, who's your auntie and uncle? Oh, yeah, they're my auntie and uncles and blah, blah, blah. Which blah, the blah. names, the surnames are a really good um, sort of director for a lot of you, isn't it? Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Well, if you look at my surname, Ban, um, because my parents uh, never married, we didn't take Gordon, which is the, the Scottish, uh, sorry, my father's surname. Yep. We took Ban. And Ban is a derivative from um, my great-great-grandfather's, whose name was Banyam. So his sons, when the, the missionaries came and, and you know, um, you know, MacDonald, MacDoodle, uh, Mac Avery, I believe the Mac bit is son of. Oh. So son of Doodle, son of Avery, son of. And so I guess our people saw that, you know, up until then everyone just had the one name, it was Greg. Mm. And then so what they started doing, and in our family instance, taking the father's name as their surname. So instead of my grandfather calling himself um, Billy Bunyam, he just called himself Billy Ban. And so that's how that, that, that name travelled through the family. Mm. So when did you first know you were in this group called Torres Strait Island, like living in Mackay? Um, well, I guess I didn't experience difference until I went to school. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, being surrounded by non-Indigenous kids. Because where I grew up in Mackay was on a riverbank, basically something a little bit more grander than a humpy, but we had the corrugated roofs we put up, had the potbelly stove in the kitchen, uh, would spend um, the afternoons filling up buckets to boil up a 44-gallon drum. So um, my brother or myself, vice versa, would stand on a chair and bathe the other one. Mm. So once we went to school and we learnt, you know, there was things called... Um, Plumbing, mm. <laughs> you could go to the toilet without having to fill up a tin, mm. and then you know months later dig a hole somewhere and empty the content. Mm. Um, but yeah, like I said, I didn't know difference until I went to school. Yes, and um, and I didn't know swearing was an issue until I got to school. My father, being a Scotsman, you can imagine how colourful his language is, and my mother, English was her third language, so she learnt her English from uh, my father and I think I was asked at school what one and one was and I jumping up and down excited and the teacher said my, so at school my second name I used it was Jonathan so everyone called me Johnny and she goes yes Johnny I said fucking too miss 
That she said, the what? Answer. She said, I said, fucking do. And she goes, up the office. So I spent a lot of time up the office of my language. And then when they invited my parents up because of my language, they found out what the fucking problem was. <laughs> they were just used to swearing. Well, yeah, th- that was my dad's, you know, every second word was an F, a B or a C. And my mum having learnt her English from him and we as children, we learnt our English from them. So. Isn't that amazing? And so you're Torres Strait, Scottish heritage and mm. Australian. Yes. And with these three worlds that you sort of had to navigate, now in reflection, what, how do you, like when someone says, how do you reconcile being an Australian? You know, if, if you're overseas and someone says, where are you from? Yes. I mean, you're not going to necessarily say, I'm from Torres Strait Islands because they would probably, I'm assuming. Yes. Because they'd probably be a bit confused. Well, where is Torres Strait? Because you don't hear about it mm. until you get to Australia. And you said Mackay and they'd probably go, oh, okay, I don't know where that is. Yes. But I'm an Australian. They go, oh, yeah, we know what that is. Yes. But how, do you, how did you find that when you travel? Did you travel to Scotland? Yeah. And- Look, I've been overseas and, you know, I've said I'm Australian. People look at me and go, there are no black people in Australia. Oh. You know, and um, when I was in Tahiti, that was sort of the, the, the reaction. And I remember I was over there for the fourth Pacific Arts Festival. I think it was 1979, something like that. And this is with dance. This is I, with dance. I went so with, we'll come back to that. Well, I went with CASM, uh, the Centre for Aboriginal Studies and Music, and mm-hmm. we played a musical suite talking about the history of Australia. And there was a, uh, a dance troupe there from the Torres Straits and people thought they were Canadian Indians because of the, the Dari. Ah. And, um, and they had to explain to them that there are two cultures. Well, there's three cultures here in Australia. We've got the South Sea Islanders, the um, Aboriginal people who are diverse within their own nations, clans mm. and family groups. And then we have the Torres Strait to a diverse group again. Yes. Um, because uh, different parts of the Torres Strait align themselves with New Guinea, um, with the north, um, the Cape York Peninsula. So there are Torres Strait Islanders who see themselves as Aborigines, mm-hmm. um, uh, especially around the Horn Island region and, and, and that. So I guess overseas, you know, the, the, there's a shifting perception. And, and you know, I was always um, led to believe that that people get confused with tradition and culture. Mm. So when I sit here with my green shirt and, uh, and my hat, this is my contemporary culture. But when I sing songs or, or talk about significant moments in history, that is my tradition. And Torres Strait people have this saying of before time, now time. And time is, um, is on a linear, you know, it, it, it's not decompartmentalized to say this is a specific thing because uh, I love how Mary Graham talks about indigenous culture. She said, uh, non-indigenous culture, you've got work, you've got church, you've got leisure time, and you try and keep your life structured like that. But she said with Indigenous people, it's a web. Mm. It's all one and the same. Mm -hmm. And I would see my mother sing a traditional hymn looking at the the race form Saturday morning to go and figure out what 
horse she was going to put a few dollars on. Mm. And then during that week, I might see her singing that song at the start or the end of a family gathering. And then the next week, that same song might be sung again at a funeral service or a wedding service. So this whole idea of of um, we only do this at specific times is not part of our, our, our cultural or, or makeup, you know. And this whole sense of time, you know, um, people used to refer to Torres Strait people as yes people, you know, because you might say, this table's purple, and I'll look at the, and I'll go, okay, if that's your belief, then that's okay. Mm. You know, as long as it's not interfe- <laughs> interfering mm. in my life, mm. um, it's 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 fine. And you know, um, the whole notion of anyway. The, the, so, the, I guess there were philosophies that clashed about how things were interpreted or seen, or you know, the only white person I saw for the first five six years of my life before I went to school was my father. Mm. You know, because everyone around me was was black. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, I, I entered into this into this other world. You know, um, I think I've gone on my own tangent there. No, but, no. But did did you do? Were you doing like traditional dance uh, yeah, as a did. family before you went to school? You were already. You yeah. know, you mentioned the headdress that Torres Strait Islanders. Yeah. Were you already exposed to that? Yeah, the, yeah. the dari and all those sorts of things. You know, my. Usual weekend was spent in the company of 30 to 40. There were funerals, 100 individuals up in the Torres Strait community. And we always saw pe- white people at a distance, you yes. know. And we were... So you didn't have a lot of white friends at that time growing up before you got to school? No. No. And, um, you know, and every now and then we'd have one of my dad's relatives pop in for a quick visit. And mm. We'd be sitting there trying to figure out, you know, Hey, laddie, how you going? You know, I'd like a cup of tea. And it's like, oh, all right, these people are speaking something that's foreign to me. Mm. You know, the, the heavy Scottish Were they swearing? Um, not as much <laughs> as my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but, you know, my dad was really eccentric. And uh, my dad loved words. And my dad would be forever saying limericks or rhyming stuff. And I guess to me... Years later, I can appreciate that wordplay as a songwriter, mm. and and I guess that sort of introduced me to that. So your love of music, and obviously there was your home, and then as you moved into the contemporary world through school and mm. the lens of hearing different music as you yes. grew up, when did you sort of start learning guitar? And well, my first introduction to Western music was Elvis Presley, mm-hmm. which I, I still love listening to Elvis and. Um, my godfather, Douglas Pitt, he would endless dreams of Elvis. So when I was over there, I would listen to Elvis or Beatles music. And um, my mother, would, she would comb my hair as a child and she'd say, I'll make you look like Elvis. I didn't even know who Elvis was <laughs> until I got 13 or 14. I went, I don't look like Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I was at school, it uh, didn't take me long to realise that I was forever in the B classes, so 6B, 7B, 8B, 9B, 10B. And they had the A's, B's, C's. And it became quite obvious very quickly that B was for behavioural because all the kids who were the 
the, the trailer trash, who were black, who were the wogs, who were blah, blah, blah. We were all in the one class. Mm. And um, learning wasn't on anyone's agenda, you know. Um, yeah. Playing poker, we'd go into science in the, we'd set the Bunsen burners on fire just to watch the, the um, fire brigade come racing over the hill into our school. And, um, and you know, people said to me, how did you get into performing? Well, the, I was walking around this, so I was in year, probably year nine, and I was with a friend of mine, Paul Condy, and, and at the time, making animal noise was the, the, the thing to do. So you'd be sitting in class and then you'd hear someone outside going, no, or, and, you know, and everyone in the, the block would laugh, you know. So Paul, on our way to manual arts, he says to me, come on, Banny, let's make some noises. And I go, oh, piss off. I said, I don't want to get into that shit. He's going, no, come on, come on, come on, come on. And he started making a cow, so. And then I could hear everyone laugh, so I started making a crow. And just as I got to the end of the, fuck, <laughs> Meathead, I can't remember, he's Mr. Keating, Mr. Keen came around, deputy principal, and he goes, you two, up my office now. So I just looked at Paul and I thought, you're lucky he's here, brother, because I've been choking you. So come lunchtime, he got us to wheel out the lectern, which is a huge thing that took about, I don't know, six people normally. So we're dragging this thing out in the middle of the parade ground. He set up these microphones and he said, ah, oh, good afternoon, students, for your listening entertainment. We've got Mr. Ban and Mr. Condi who are going to entertain you. And he went to hand Paul the microphone and Paul was just trembling and he weed himself. He was that. So, you know, there's this 13, 14 year old kid just standing there in his own wee. And he just looked at him and he said, oh. and he was crying and he was handing the mic and he just said, you know, get away your grot or something like that. So he left and I'm looking at my friend who's just weed himself and he hands me the microphone. He goes, let's see what you can do, Mr. Ban. And I thought, okay, I've seen my uncles many times. Dustin, Tustin, okay. I said, everyone, for my first animal noise, I'm going to make a cow. And I went, and everyone laughed. And I said, and for my second animal noise, I'm going to make a crow. And I looked at um, Mr. Keen, I went, fuck you, sir. <laughs> and I ended up in detention for a few weeks after that. But, Solitary. Solitary. <laughs> and I, I remember as I was being marched down the stairs back up to the office thinking, hey, that was really cool. You could grab people's attentions. And, um, and I always wanted to learn to play the um, guitar because I saw uh, an uncle of mine, Ernest the Wang, who could play the guitar with his teeth and he could play it behind his head and he played it between his legs and he'd do all the Chuck Berry stuff, you know. Uh, he was into the ventures and um, so there was a lot of instrumental shadows music and, and I would just be mesmerised mesmerized by mm. what, what he could do. So when I left school, I remember sitting with um, my maths teacher and, and home, home uh, form teacher, uh, I can't remember her name now, uh, Mrs. Oh, jeez, it's a pity. Um, Mrs. Mills, I think her name was, crying and, and because I failed, everything I failed. 
because of the the group. And, and, you know, she took a shine to me. And there were certain teachers in our lives who, you know, and she said, come back to school. And I said, for what? I said, I can't read. I can't write, you know. Um, so uh, there was a, a teacher by the name of Flip Simons. And when there was a shortage of Australian teachers, we ended up with these American teachers. And just to digress, I remember in year five, we had a beautiful teacher by the name of Evelyn Carter, when I was in 5B, who um, brought in all these artifacts and she set them up on a table and she said, my uh, grandfather, Howard Carter, discovered these in a tomb. And we go, oh, what's the tomb, miss? And said, oh, Tutankhamun. So she had scarabs, she had uh, papaya paper, she had these monthly candles all from his tomb. And she said, now I must warn you children that whoever touches them, they're cursed and they can, you know, <laughs> you could die. <laughs> I was thinking, I'll oh, stuff this, I'll go up, my life is cursed already. And so I'm holding all these scarab bands and looking at this papaya paper, holding it up. And, and, um, and then years later discovering that who Tutankhamun was. And I thought, oh yeah, that's the guy we tinkered with his stuff. Anyway, Flip Simons coming back to, to uh, grade 10 and he'd set me up to come down to Brisbane to train for the Commonwealth Games. And because um, if you're black, you're a good runner. <laughs> and were you a good runner? You were a good runner? Yeah, I was, yeah. Know, I, was, uh, I was pretty good. And so the whole idea was he got the scholarship. I was going to become a carpenter. I was going to be, and he had my whole life planned for me. Mm. And, and I remember just sitting thinking, do I really want to do this? Like I enjoy running, mm. but it seemed more his dream than my dream, mm. you know. And um, the guidance office, Indigenous guidance officer was Val Wright, and she said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to learn to play guitar. And she said, look, there's this place called the Aboriginal on the Dance Theatre. And if you go there, I'm sure you'll be able to learn to play guitar. She lied. I became a dancer instead. But while I was there, look, I had a, uh, this guy, all I can remember his name was Gary and he worked in a music shop. And he said, what do you want to do, kid? I said, I want to play songs. And he said, well, who do you like? And I said, the Beatles. So he took me down to the store and he gave me this Beatles, well, I had to buy the Beatles book, but it had, you know, chord charts that were like, and I remember just sitting there playing these songs from mm. my childhood and, and just thinking how wonderful it was. And, you know, it was, it was probably a few months after that that um, I was in a second-hand store and I got John Lennon's Shaved, um, Shaved Fish album, his greatest hits. And the, the guy said, look, the record's missing. I said, the record's missing? And he's going, he said, look, I can't find it. He said, just keep the album. So I thought, oh, I've got this, this John Lennon album. And growing up, I liked John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr and George Harrison's individual artists. And then, it, <laughs> then I realised they were all in the same band. It just blew me away. I went, oh, man, Paul McCartney. <laughs> and I remember sitting at home and I, I was so happy and I was reading the different songs on this, the Shaved Fish album. I was listening to the news and then it said John Lennon was murdered this, that same day. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought it was ironic that he couldn't find the record and he, he gave me the album and just said, just have it, kid. And the guy that I idolised, I, I guess, um, um, had been gunned down and murdered. You know, um, many, many, many years later, I have a 13-year-old whose name is Lennon, you know. Ah, as, um, in honour of yeah, John Lennon, the relationship. Yeah. 
And I guess the the John Lennon as an artist, as an activist, as a as a writer, has always been an inspiration in my life. Mm-hmm. And this this quest for truth, you yes. know, that song of his, you know, give me some truth. And I guess I've tried to be. You know, people call your music political, and or, or they call it indigenous or whatever. As an artist, we can only write about what we know. You know, know, I can't write about what it's like to be a woman. Mm. I can only write from this perspective of being a a father of a daughter or a husband whose wife's a woman or from from that sort of perspective. So all my life and my creativity has been about what I've seen and I've experienced, you know. Mm. Now, you've become a music therapist. That was a number of years ago. How did that come about? I was working at uh, the um, ADORS, the uh, Adolescent Drug and Awareness uh, Services, which now is called uh, Clarence Street. And I was doing a songwriting workshop with a group of young uh, people going through uh, rehab there. And I said, you know, it was around Christmas time. I said, you know, if I gave you $500, who would you buy a present for? Who was the most um, uh, significant person in your life who can help you through this? And this Indian girl stood up and she just started screaming like like a banshee and ran out of the space. And the the workers came running in again. They said, what did you say? What did you do? What, you know, and I just said, well, I said this. And they looked as bewildered as I did. Anyway, I left. The young girl, uh, she was out of the center for about an hour and a half and she returned. And then I discovered that she'd been raped by multiple, uh, multiple times by different members of her family. And, and then I thought, well, music's a lot more profound than, than all the use of music because I was there writing songs with young people. Mm. And I remember reading an article on music therapy and the application of it. And I rang up and said, hey, that sounds great. How do I get on board? And so I, I did an audition. I, I sang a couple of my songs. And then the woman who auditioned me, um, Jane Edwards, rang me a couple of hours after the audition and said, look, are you really, really keen to do this? And I said, yeah. And she said, but why? You already have these you know, talents and experience as a, a community arts worker. I said, but well, I don't have a piece of paper. Mm. I said, you can do this stuff for donkey's years. I can go get a paper and, and six months later show my piece of paper and all of a sudden I'm experienced or mm. I have some knowledge. So um, so I undertook the course. And what I realised that uh, there were 28 people auditioned and I was one of three who was allowed to do the course. Wow. I struggled through the course because I can't read music. Uh, it's just something that I don't have the patience and people say, well, why bother about it? And to me, it's like I've robbed myself of this whole collection of other people's thoughts and mm. ideas and not being able to play music robs me of the opportunity to advance my own skills as, a, as an artist, as a, a thing. So I, I guess coming up to today now, some, um, geez, what's it been? Nearly 14 years, I think, since I've got my piece of paper. Yeah, that was through UQ. Yeah, yep. University of Queensland, which is, you know, no longer there, you know. And um, 
As in the 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 course. The course is no longer. You know, there, yeah. Because the university was more interested in making money from the course mm-hmm. than what it actually provides as a service. Now, the interesting thing with UQ is that um, when we talk about the the blackbirding and the slavery that existed over the years, yep. wherever the slave boats went, they paid homage to their home port. So when they went through the Caribbeans, they set up their port in there. When they went through all different parts of the world, they set up the, the, the name of their home port. When they came to Brisbane, they set up the name home port. And the word is St. Lucia. So there's St. Lucia on the Ivory Coast, St. Lucia in the Caribbeans, and the St. Lucia here in Brisbane. So when you follow that history of that, that's where all the slaves, slaving boats. Mm. So, so here in, um, you know, so St. Lucia is the, the same ships that went through the, the Caribbeans and, you know, the, the, the... So anyway, so that was interesting to be studying. No, it was <laughs> fascinating. And Ash, fact, when you were talking way back about the original name of Torres, mm. you know, in the Spanish, and um, uh, there's a beautiful book um, by a guy called Nick Brody. Mm. Uh, called 1787 that looks at those 300 years of the different, um, you know, the Portuguese, the French, the Dutch uh, and the Spanish, how they never quite knew there was a big continent here. Yes. And they sort of mixed up New Guinea and Torres Strait and Indonesia because they had, the Dutch had sort of had done a port there. Yes. And all these sort of connections over hundreds of years. So Mm. for Torres Strait, like, and correct me here, 1788 in terms of the the so-called white history of mm. Australia in the British sense, but this whole interaction had been going on hundreds of years before that particular line in the sand. And, and, and the flag being dropped. Look, yes. I, I've always subscribed to my cousin Steve Mam's um, uh, definition of Torres Strait Islander people. He said, we're visitors, like yep. everyone else. We've come here as visitors. And our first, um, uh, I guess, uh, what's the word? Um, Principle, or uh, there's a different word, uh, about is to pay respect to the original people, you know? And, um, you know, where are we at as a country? Uh, You know, at at the start of this, uh, before the camera came on, we spoke about these different subgroups and, and cultural identities. And then you have indigenous people who say, you know, I stand on indigenous land mm. and I first and foremostly, <clears throat> I might see myself as uh, Yagara, Turable or um, Jagara before I see myself as an Australian, mm. you know. Um, yes, when I go overseas, I say, you know, from Australia, but my people are. And then when once you start with that second line, my people are, and they go, oh, what do you mean your people are? Aren't you Australians? And then you have to, you know, explain. Mm. I look at my children, and they're a diverse collection of, um, you know, of, of Maori, of Scottish, of English, of Irish ancestry. Mm. Yes. And I remember my um, uh, ex-wife's father saying to me, oh, we're going to have issues here. And I said, issues about what? He said, well, he said, my grandchildren are Maori, and I want them to be Maori. And I said, great. I said, the Torres Strait, and I want them to be Torres Strait too. Mm. And he's going, well, there's the issue. I said, there's no issue. Mm. 
I said, it only becomes an issue when we make it an issue. Exactly. Yes. So, so you're proud to be as Scottish as you are Torres Strait. Yeah. And you're as proud to be Australian as an Australian. Yes. And um, because to me, you know, look, at the end of the day, I see myself as part of this collective of this world. When I've got politicians talking about global warming, it don't matter. You know, there's a Warumpi song. It's it's all the same when the ship is sinking. Mm. We're on a sinking ship. Yeah, all in this together. We're all in this together. So, yes, let's look at traditional land management, all these things on offer, Mm. which we've never explored. Yes. You know, my children can learn to speak... um, Mandarin, uh, they can learn to speak, Ch- uh, sorry, French. They got all these, but there's there's no opportunity for them to learn an indigenous language. Mm. And there are indigenous speakers right yeah. here. Why don't we have one brave school that says we're going to teach people how to speak Yagara or Jagara? Mm. You know, and well, people are going to say, well, what's the importance of that? We'll say, well, what's the importance? Is we're paying homage to the people here and we're reviving language. How come nobody's learned bush skills? How come mm. bush skills aren't taught at school? You know, how many times do we see young ones lost in the bush? There was a young autistic kid. Mm. You know, thank heavens he yes. was found alive. So our responsibility is to share our knowledge. You know, I um, once, you know, I stood in front of my family group and I brought out a $20 note and I held, held it up. And they were looking at me at a family gathering. What's what's the symbolism in this? I said, well, in non-Indigenous culture, this is what we value. Mm. I said, you could be a liar, a cheat, a rapist, but if you have this, then there is some respectability. I said, our whole culture has been built on relationships. I have a 13-year-old, a 10-year-old who are grandparents. And people go, oh, that's really novel. I said, no, it's not novel. It just shows shows what their position in the family is. Mm. It doesn't give them any more sense of um, eldership or you've got to respect these people, but it lets the family know where their position is in, in, in our family. And I think in some ways that's what we need to figure out as a country. Where is our position in this place that we call Australia, you know? I think the days of hitting each other over the head to get us to agree or for you to come on my side to understand my argument are long gone. Mm. Because while we're fighting, this world <laughs> is quickly disappearing. Yes. You know? And and unfortunately in the Torres Straits, some of our islands are disappearing mm. into the ocean. Mm. You know? King tides come and and they just run rampant through the village, you know. So, you know, as a society in general, um, I think we still have long ways to go. I think the truth-telling and storytelling is all part. When I first came to Brisbane, there used to be a huge fig tree about 400, no, less 200 metres from where we were. I remember standing there and I just felt all the sorrow around this tree. And I spoke to some local people and said, what's the story with this tree? There's lots of sadness. And they said, that's where Indigenous people were hung when they were found within the boundary. Mm. So when we get out of our Refidex, we have Boundary Street that goes through Cooparoo, um, South Brisbane, uh, Spring Hill. And that was the boundary of which 
um, indigenous people could come in, mm. you know. And, you know, how come there's not an indigenous tour in the city? I can walk through South Bank, I can go and visit a Thai temple, I can have Greek food, I can experience all these things, but I don't experience indigenous culture. Except black card cultural tours. Black card cultural tours. You're going there. Oh, yes. You know, how would you and I feel if we went to the Great Wall of China? How much would it cost us to get there? Mm. You know, five or six grand. Yes. We get there and we hop off and we're walking along the the Great Wall of China and there's a guy there with a Kubra and cork screws going, G'day, mate. (laughs) Welcome to China. I'm your, you know, this... Something then is going to go, hey, mate, this, this is not right. You know, I, I remember catching a plane to Napranim, and Napranim is the community just outside of Weeper. Yep. And as the plane was descending, uh, was on a Qantas link, the pilot came on and he said, I just want to inform everyone that you're coming into the lands of the... And he, spoke of the, the seven different clans, he spoke of the language groups, and he said, and we ask that while you're here in this country to respect the laws. And I was sitting there crying. And the person beside me said, are you okay? I said, did you hear that? And he went, mm. yeah, yeah, they, they do that all the time. I said, just imagine every plane landing in Australia mm. on the tarmac before they land. Mm. We are now arriving in Brisbane. This is the country of the Turrbal, Yagara peoples and... Mm how Beautiful. quickly things will change oh. just from a simple Do you think we, I think we're getting closer to that. I think, I think I can see it unfolding over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. And I think this will expedite, let's hope, over the next five, 10 years, you know. After visiting New Zealand, mm. I can see, you know, obviously there's a whole different um, experience there in terms of the 350-plus nations here and, you know, the endless amount of languages, it's not as easy just to, you know, simplify it. Yeah, but, but Greg, I think the issue <clears throat> is, is that why do we have to put uh, a vote, a conscious vote out mm. into the, the ethos about including Indigenous yeah. people into the Constitution? It should you know? be the flip side. It should be the other way. Well, it? you know. there's 500,000 500, Indigenous people all up, let's say, there are 24 million non-Indigenous people making a decision mm. for that 500,000, yes. you know? Yes. It'd be the same as saying, well, all men are going to vote on the rights of women, mm. you know? The women would kick up a stink, mm. saying, well, what's it got to do with men? They don't know anything. Mm. And that's how it's constantly been. We have yeah. this paternalistic um, um, view of what Indigenous people need. Mm. Ask the 500,000 what they want. Yep. And then, out of good conscience, out of uh, the, the fairness, let the 24 million go, we're glad you, what, you fellas decided that, we're going to support you, mm. you know? But we can't because we, the non-Indigenous people, have to somehow look out for the interest of that 3%. So on that note, you've written a song. Mm. And um, I'd, I'd love for you to play it for our listeners. Give us a little bit of background before we close out on yes. the song, um, how it came about, and um, then we'll have a listen. Yeah. Well, the, the song's called uh, Always Was, Always Will Be, and I, I guess that's a chant 
we've heard numerous times in in the community, particularly on uh, Australia Day or Invasion Day, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, T-shirts yep. and yep. and I went looking for for that song uh, because. Uh, the concert we did recently, Heal Country, I wanted all the artists to play uh, an Indigenous song by an Indigenous artist that had some significance. So I went looking, I thought, oh, I'll sing that song. And I couldn't find one. And so I ended up writing the song and and I guess the themes on, on it are to deal with death and custody and the, the high the high rate of Indigenous incarceration and, um, you know, it seems that suicide now is the antidote for life in Indigenous communities, especially with a young... When you hear a 10-year-old girl takes her life, you know, 10 years old, wow. what does she know of life to want to not be in life anymore? That doesn't make any sense. No. So I guess the whole song explores a lot of those, um, you know, the issues and... Uh, I guess, you know, one of the lyrics is let's advance Australia fair and the, the, the debate over the, um, over the use of that song, you know, does it represent all Australians? No, it never did. It was never written to represent. So, um, so in regards to reconciliation, the future of this country, there is still a lot of dialogue to, to take place. And like I said... 3% against the, the 97% is never going to win in anyone's equations. Mm. Well, let's hope that that song resonates with some people and that our conversation is all part of the healing and unification yes. and sharing stories and sharing our lives, experiences. So mm. we'll wrap up and then we're going to listen to your song. Great. Um, so thanks, everyone. And Gitano? Thank you. Wonderful and having you on board, brother. <laughs> <laughs> really enjoyed having you in conversation. That's really lovely. And, and you know, it, uh, my belief is at the end of the day, we are a series of stories. Yes. And it's those stories that give our lives meaning and hopefully meaning to other people. And, and I guess podcasts like yourself allow people to tell their stories. So thank you, my brother. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. And what we're going to also do is... Um, we're going to have a separate uh, sharing of this on our website. The song will be part with a lot Great. more information about Gitano Band. Thanks, everyone, for listening and viewing our podcast. Don't forget our website, which is www.walkin3worlds.com, or you can become a patron at Patreon, uh, patreon.com, but you can find that all on our website. I'd like to thank some of our patrons, our current patrons, particularly Jamie, uh, Fez, and uh, also um, Sayera. Sayera, thank you all for being part of our patronage. Really appreciate your support so far. Thanks, everyone. Have a listen to the song. We're going to leave it to Gitano. Calling us flags fly on stolen land. With broken promises, blood on your hands And all the while you can't understand Our soul connection to this ancient land Always was, always will be Aboriginal land Always was, always will be Aboriginal land 